The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. That's because it helps you navigate demand-side energy management programs, uh, helps you operate in open energy markets, and make use of your energy assets. Find out how you can make money and achieve those green goals by going to cpowerenergymanagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. It's been a bad week for two of Silicon Valley's top car companies. A pedestrian was killed by one of Uber's autonomous cars in Arizona, and now the company's AV operations are suspended. Other driverless car companies are weighing the consequences to the tech, and regulators are asking if we're going too fast. Tesla is also dealing with two crashes of its own. The crash of a Model X is raising questions about autopilot mode, and its stock has crashed 25% this month as the company struggles to get cars to customers as promised. We'll give updates on both. It was a bad week for Trump, too, who got snubbed by Republicans in the latest budget. He didn't get his wall, and he didn't get his cuts to clean energy programs. We'll look at why the GOP is so out of step with the White House on clean energy cuts. Coming to us from Washington, D.C., are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions. Howdy. How are you? I'm great. Supposed Today's supposed to be opening day for the Nats, but sadly, it's going to be tomorrow because of rain in Cincinnati. Jigger Shaw is president of Generate Capital. He is back after traveling on the West Coast. Jigger, are you excited for baseball season? I am. I am. You know, it's one of those weird things where even though I'm not a huge baseball fan, I sort of like the the concept of the Cubs and the, and the Nationals and all that stuff. Okay. Well, talking about baseball season, that's light. Uh, we have to turn to some darker stuff to start the show And unfortunately, we are talking about a moment that so many people feared that has come. The first person was killed in America by an automated car. Last Sunday, a pedestrian was struck by an Uber AV as she was crossing the road at night. And the the footage shows the person behind the wheel of the Volvo uh, simply supervising and not driving look away before striking the woman who was walking across the street at night with her bicycle. And so far, the consensus is that the car's LIDAR system should have worked, and investigators are still trying to figure out what went wrong here. Arizona's governor called the footage disturbing and alarming, and it really is uh, very disturbing. So Arizona has now kicked Uber's AVs off the road. Uber has suspended its AV operations in other states, and, and a bunch of other companies have halted their operations too. By the time this show ends, a few people will have died in auto accidents in this country. And, you know, that's that's morbid. And I don't mean to be insensitive. I, I don't want to take anything away from this horrible death of Elaine Hertzberg. But, you know, we're fixated on a particular death because it raises all these very difficult and often disturbing questions about AVs. Who's responsible here? Um How much trust do we have in this technology? And if AVs are safer than human-operated cars, what is the cost we're willing to tolerate for realizing that future? These are not easy questions to answer, and this latest death is kind of forcing us to grapple 
with them in the regulatory environment and in the press. So, so Catherine, how much does this death change the trajectory of AVs right now? I think it will slow a few things down. Um, unfortunately, this kind of situation is inevitable. It's going to happen and it's going to continue to happen. Uh, the technology is not necessarily ready for prime time, but as you mentioned, human drivers are far less perfect than probably machine drivers will be. I reached out to Josh Goldman from Union of Concerned Scientists, who's been on the show before and is sort of the expert that I turn to on all issues related to autos. And he said, look, the LiDAR system shouldn't care whether it's dark or not. Um, Waymo, Waymo has a far better record than Uber does on these technologies, but the technology really isn't there yet. We still need to continue to test it. And another key piece is going to be, of course, policy. We have to make sure that the safety standards are there and in place and that we're really thinking intentionally about this because it will come. Some of the policies are now going to be hung up a little bit. There's a bill that's that's probably going to be stalled a little bit more in the Senate um, that was that was intended to move the technology forward at the same time, creating some consistent policy for everyone to follow. Um, I think it's still going to happen and it's still going to be safer than humans driving cars, but certainly it gives pause. Yeah. I mean, now we've got this blame game going on. Um, the Waymo CEO said, well, our system could have worked better. And, and it actually, from the reporting that I've seen, Uber is pretty far behind in it, it, the performance of its driverless cars. Um, apparently, like it, it's needed human intervention once every like 15 or 20 minutes. I can't remember what the, the number is, but far, far more human intervention was needed than Waymo. So you have, you know, Waymo CEO basically um, spinning this and saying, well, our, our system could do a lot better. Meanwhile, the company that makes the LiDAR system is saying, well, as as you mentioned, Catherine, the LiDAR system should work perfectly fine at night. This should have easily captured the human. So it's probably Uber's analytics system and how it processes that information. Uber has stayed relatively quiet. Uh, I mean, it has no other choice but to stay quiet on this and work with authorities. There's really nothing for the company to say at this point until the investigation is, is over. And then meanwhile, um, you know, Arizona's governor is revisiting the um, laissez-faire approach to putting AVs on the road. So a lot of questions here and a lot of finger pointing. I do think that that this is going to be a pivotal moment in the autonomous vehicle evolution. And I do think it is unfortunate that context is just really hard to maintain um, when you look at this. I mean, we have about 37,000 people who die every year from vehicle accidents, right? That's over 100 a day. And then we have over 2,000 people who get injured in car accidents every day, right? So I just think that context is really hard here. And I do think that um, we do need autonomous vehicles. It is well proven that people want to do anything but drive their cars. They want to eat food. They want to play with their radio. They want to like talk on the cell phone. They, people want to distract themselves with anything but the monotonous efforts of driving a car. And people who are elderly or people who have disabilities who are unable to drive cars uh, would be able to take advantage of this technology too. It's not just people who want to be doing something other than driving. This creates a bit of a, an awkward moment over how you talk about this stuff because 
autonomous vehicles are largely seen as a way to significantly reduce human error and deaths. Um, but you don't want to be the tech company that comes out and basically like dismisses an individual death uh, by saying that there's this common good long term. At the same time, you know, that that's that's kind of the reality that we're facing. We're going to see catastrophe and problems, but uh, ultimately we're getting to a better place. And it just it's such an awkward, an awkward conversation to be having, but a necessary one. Well, and I don't think it's helpful for all the other companies to be throwing Uber under the bus, so to speak, because they're saying ours is better and ours will work. I think it's really important that everybody come together around standards, around testing, around education, safety, consumer protection. And you can do that through federal leadership. We need it through this S1885, which is called the AV Start Act, which has some issues with it, but something like that that puts in place some standards and having NHTSA, the highway transportation safety folks, not just have loose voluntary guidance, which is what it is now. And of course, in this age of deregulation, the white the administration is saying we need less regulation. This is one place where regulation and regulatory guidance and standards for everybody would be really, really helpful. Uh, this is one place where like Silicon Valley's libertarian, like low emotional quotient might actually be useful. Um, we do have to have a clear eyed view of what it is that we're going after. I do think that, that if this is allowed to get very emotional, which I think it already has, then you're going to see huge setbacks. I mean, you've already got most major companies have suspended testing. Um, you know, others have actually said that they're no longer going to really be, you know, pursuing major testing programs. Um, that's a huge step back. And, you know, in the March of Progress, um, you do need some of these sort of insensitive, you know, sort of like tone deaf folks to like, you know, to march on with this stuff. I think if everything is well talked about and thought through and whatever else, we're going to put ourselves into paralysis. In some ways, you do need people who are just going to keep going and break through the, the you know, the logjam. Well, I do disagree with you there because... We're not talking about Uber. We're not talking about Uber coming in and, and disrupting the cab industry and, and just taking this calculated approach to, um, you know, putting its cars on the road and then dealing with the regulatory consequences later. We're talking about human lives. Right. But let's let's put this in context. Right. We just had a mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. We just had, you know, an African-American man in Sacramento that just got shot up with 20 bullets by the local police force for holding an iPhone, right? I mean, ultimately, we have one death in autonomous vehicles, right? I just think that when you think about how people die in this country, there are kids who die from, um, like, from window treatment sort of like uh, cords. I think there's like 13 kids who hang themselves with those things by accident every year, right? That is why we have the federal protection work that gets done through, you know, all the testing and regulatory affairs folks that we do. But now we have the first death here. And so we're going to like foreclose the opportunity to save hundreds of thousands of people over the next 10, 20 years because one person has died, right? I mean, sometimes you need like folks who are bold enough to be able to break through all of the sort of like, you know, sort of, you know, misplaced outrage to be able to, you know, continue to make progress. This is why this conversation is so interesting 
to me because we have to be brutally honest about the consequences here. And quite frankly, there are a lot of tech companies who can't get up and say what you just said. There's probably not a lot of people who are willing to go on national television and express what you just said there. But uh, a lot of folks would probably agree with you. And it is very difficult to have this conversation when we're talking about a person's life. But there is a much bigger framework that we're operating in here. And, uh, you know, we have to move through these uncomfortable conversations to get to the place where I think we want to be. Yeah. And we have to make sure that we answer some really key questions up front. Like who's liable in this kind of instance? Um, who, where does the um, responsibility lie? Who is, who needs to give consumers education about what this is and how it can help them and make sure that everybody is telling the same story and that states and cities are use, are under the same rules so that everybody understands the the playing field and then let the innovators do what they're going to do because this is really important technology. Yeah, and we also need to make sure that people take personal responsibility, right? I mean, you know, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, which is supposed to be a walk-in community, and we have near-death you know, moments here all the time because people are glued to their iPhone while they're walking across the street and no one looks around anymore. Pedestrians are not trying to be safe. And it's important for all of us to just understand that this problem of distraction is one that's multiplying and absolutely causing us all to be less safe. Yeah. There's another counter argument to this long-term question about saving lives. Uh, And that is that, you know, we can't just sit here and take the tech companies at their word. You know, if we just say, oh, they're they're working in our best interests and they're developing a technology that's eventually going to save lives, that that pushes um, community leaders out of the conversation. And I think it it narrows the conversation in favor of the tech companies. And uh, they can talk a lot about a big game about how they're going to benefit society. But ultimately, these companies are looking out for themselves. Just taking this cool, calculated approach, I think, misses this broader um, necessary discussion about consequences to communities, how to plan communities around AV, how to deal with who's responsible for a crash, etc. So I don't want to just take the tech companies at face value here. Well, also, we have to think about the OEMs. And sure, the tech, tech companies are coming up with interesting systems, but the OEMs are the ones that are really selling all the cars. And a lot of cars today are already highly automated So many systems built into cars right now already help the driver do the job better. And I don't think that's going to slow down. Hey, we're going to quickly pause this conversation to talk about C-Power Energy Management. Got a question for you. What happens when you combine DR with DER? Well, you get a way to save on your energy costs, keep the grid healthy, and earn revenue at the same time. C-Power has partnered with STEM the national storage experts, to bring you a leading-edge program that integrates demand response with distributed energy resources like on-site battery storage. It helps you curtail your grid energy use with little or no disruption to -to day-to-day operations, not to mention the savings and earnings that can be realized. You're going to be happy. The grid's going to be happy. Your customers are going to be happy. That is just one of the demand-side energy management solutions that C-Power provides to its customers. You can learn more about what C-Power does to help you and your company's bottom line at cpowerenergymanagement.com. Over to Tesla now. Here's another crazy stat for you. 
By the time this podcast ends, Tesla will have burned through roughly $300,000 in cash. According to a Bloomberg calculation, Tesla is spending about $6,500 a minute. It is make or break time for Tesla. I know we've said that a bunch, but like this really feels different. Um, you know, Musk makes these sweeping and ambitious claims. So it's kind of always make or break time. But this is the most pressure the company has ever faced, I think. Tesla's stock is down by around 25% this month, largely because investors are getting concerned that Model 3s aren't rolling out fast enough or meeting quality standards. Tesla's making about half the cars that initially claimed. And CNBC reported recently that 40% of parts at Tesla's factory have needed rework. Tesla's got a cash crunch. It needs $2 billion more just to get through this year, and it faces uh, $1.2 billion in debt that's due next year. On top of it all, all eyes are on a recent deadly Model X crash. Everyone's wondering if Autopilot was engaged, and it's getting this attention because of the Uber Arizona crash. So here we are, Jigger. Of this litany of issues I outlined, are there any that concern you the most? Well, it all comes down to sort of the original sin, right, which is that that Elon Musk really believes that he could produce a car in a mass-produced fashion. And then separately, he was obsessed about having robots make them, right? And it's taken a lot longer than he thought to get there, right? So the Model 3 just isn't there, and they're burning cash every day because there are people basically standing around or, you know, doing hand repairs to Model 3s to get them out the door, right? And, and you know, I think all of this could be avoided if he just basically said, I'm giving up on the Model 3. We're partnering with Toyota on it. They're going to manufacture it now because they're clearly better at making cars than I am. And I'm going to keep working on like the Tesla Semi and the Model S and all the custom cars that we like to make and continue to innovate, right? But I think that until that you know, cloud is lifted and people either have confidence in his ability to actually deliver the Model 3 at a profit or, you know, like finds what the strategic alternatives are. You know, his bonds are in free fall. I think the bonds are now trading at 86 cents on the dollar. And, um, you know, that's a sign that if he went back out to the market to raise another $2 billion, it'd be very difficult to raise. The Wall Street Journal quoted a Bernstein analyst uh, research note that said that fewer than 30% of customers who've been invited to take delivery and who had put down their deposit on a Model 3 have even, haven't even taken it. So, I don't even know that it's getting the pickup and I know the car costs money other than the thousand dollars, but uh, you know, that's an interesting statistic too. Yeah. I don't think that there's a lack of interest in their cars though, to be clear. Like, I mean, that could be a stat that pretends that, but my sense is it's more just people were overly enthusiastic when they put the thousand dollars down and then don't have the other 50,000 lying around when uh, the car, you know, is ready for them to pick up. But, I, but I, so I think the, the customers of Tesla are still super excited as they should be. They continue to do great innovate, innovative work. I just think that the fundamental car company is not living up to its promise of profits, right? The original business plan was that the Roadster was going to be profitable and that funded the Model S and the Model S was going to be profitable and that funded the Model X and the Model X was profitable and that funded the Model 3. But I don't think any of the four product lines are profitable right now. And so it just means that they have to keep burning cash until they get to some mythical you know, economies of scale. I'm, I'm actually pretty shocked that you think Tesla should roll back on the Model 3 that that's i mean musk's story 
is what is keeping investor interest. So look what happened to Solar City when at at you know at some point the Rive brothers said, "Hey, we're scaling back growth to focus on profitability." Their stock took a brutal hit because investors were like, "Wait a second. We bought your stock with the expectation that we were going to get this level of growth and now you're telling us that you're going to scale back growth." If Musk did the same thing for the Model 3, he would take an absolute beating. Well, that's better than never getting your ideas to fruition, right? I mean, you know, Solar City at least had Big Brother and Tesla to buy them. I don't know who Tesla has to buy them in, as Big Brother, right? Ultimately, um, it's going to be very, Apple. Well, I do think <laughs> Apple will buy them, but not at this price point. And so, I think we're in a situation where. Like what I'm suggesting is they partner up with like Toyota and say, Toyota, you don't really have an electric vehicle strategy after having a really good plug-in, uh, I mean, uh, hybrid electric vehicle strategy. Why don't you help make the cars for us? Because you're clearly better at manufacturing than we are. And we'll continue to hype the product and sell them. It's interesting that they did that with Panasonic basically at their Buffalo facility. So you're suggesting doing that on a bigger scale for, for cars. I don't I don't know, Jigger. I just don't buy it. I mean, I definitely see your logic, but this company is built on this uh, you know, unicorn farting out rainbows uh, type story. It's all tied up in Elon's vision and uh if you if you back that unicorn up, then you know, Tesla doesn't have a lot. And and so I, I just, I don't know. I, I think it's financially catastrophic if you dramatically change that story. His stockholders really believe in him. I mean, they want him to stay there. They want him to stay put. And they want him to be really successful. And they're going to reward him handsomely if he is. Yeah. Did you see that pay package? It was crazy. But um, yeah. Remind me what the number was. Is it $2.6 billion over so. 10 years if they hit a certain target. I, I, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't have the exact numbers, but it was around two and a half billion. Yeah. It, yes. It was 2.6 billion. And it, I mean, it requires the stock price to go up and all that stuff. So it's not free money, but it's just, um, look, and I think he deserves it if he meets the test that it requires, like profitability and all that stuff. But look, I want to believe that Tesla is going to get there. I do. I'm not shorting the stock. I don't own the stock. I don't like, I don't wish him you know, harm. But I do think that the purpose of my comments is really to describe, you know, the fundamentals of how gravity works, right? I mean, like, I just think that at some point to be able to make money on a $35,000 car or a $50,000 car, you have to be able to make the car for less money than that. And he hasn't been able to prove that he can do that. And so at some point, you run out of cash and you run out of investors who want to give you more cash. And that's how companies die. And I don't want to see Tesla die. So I hope they take countermeasures that you know can ensure success. Right. So it needs to raise a ton of a ton more cash to get it through just this year. How is it going to raise that cash? Issuing more bonds might be too expensive. It might have to issue more equity. It might have to just like take out expensive bank loans. Whatever the options are, they aren't cheap, but Musk is tied down. He needs to raise more money. Yeah. To be clear, the reason why Sun Edison went bankrupt is they raised more debt. So if anyone at Tesla is listening, do not raise more debt. Like this is a time that you raise more equity. You dilute the stock and you raise more equity because that's what you need. You need flexible capital from flexible shareholders. You don't need debt that you can't pay back and then the debt holders can take over your company. I saw Travis Hoyam from The Motley Fool tweet out 
that he was uh, he was previewing like a, a 1,000 or 2,000 word piece on the similarities between Tesla and Sun Edison. Have not read that piece, haven't seen if it came out as of this recording, but are there similarities between what you're seeing with Tesla and the final months of Sun Edison jigger? Yeah, unrealistic promises um, that were sort of, you know, anchored in, um, as you named it, unicorn farts. And so, um, you know, I think, and then if they take on too much debt, then those debt holders are not forgiving, right? I mean, with equity, the stock price could go down. But with debt, the debt holders basically say, uh, if you can't pay our interest, then we're going to, we own the company. Let's go to your backyards of Washington, D.C. to wrap this show up. We've long been saying here on the Energy Gang to watch the actual budget, not Trump's political budget. Of course, the White House budget is important. It's a political document that clearly states the administration's spending and cutting priorities. And those priorities for clean energy and the environment were pretty clear. Slash and burn at EPA and the Department of Energy. Members of Congress were not so hot on that idea after all. Instead, they passed a $1.3 trillion budget that was effectively the exact opposite of what Trump wanted. They kept EPA's budget intact. They raised spending for ARPA-E, the uh, energy R&D program, and they increased spending for the DOE Renewables Office. Catherine, not a surprise that Trump didn't get his way, but were these increases surprising in any way to you? Yeah, so here's the thing. Remember, they agreed to caps. They were very high caps that they agreed to before they filled in all the details so in the end, everybody got a car. I mean, everybody's everybody got a raise. Um, that was the first big piece, is that it wasn't just clean energy programs that were increased. The second piece is that this shows that programs have constituents. And those clean energy programs that have been going on for at least eight years, certainly through the Obama administration, have pulled together lots of public-private partnerships, and those include private sector companies, they include universities, innovators, all of those people have pieces of these programs. And what that means is that there are jobs and there's technology in everybody's district. And so having constituents really does pay off. So this this bill goes through September 30th. Now, remember, we have to do appropriation so that there will be a new budget year starting October 1st that they'll have to have a whole new set of appropriation bills for. But this is this is good news for the rest of this fiscal year. So the EPA is going to keep its uh, $8.1 billion budget, and it's got even more money allocated to Superfund, the Department of Energy. Congress uh, gave uh, ARPA-E a $47 million increase, and the Renewables Office, they got a 15% increase. Where are these spending increases coming from? Like, is this are these progressives getting these increases in and kind of sneaking them by Republicans? Is it a bipartisan deal? Or is it constituents who are demanding this? I think it's that everybody has projects in their district and in their states. I thought it was very bipartisan. Um, You'll see that the appropriators, you know, there are projects in every single one of those states and every single one of those districts. They all have universities or labs or companies that are innovating. uh, And that's a good thing. And I think that it shows that these programs are very popular. Look, first of all, I don't think Donald Trump actually cares at all about any of this stuff. I think he cares about trade and he cares about immigration. I don't think he cares about any of these topics. Um, separately, this is Mick Mulvaney's you know, baby over at OMB, and it's clear that no one listens to Mick Mulvaney. And so he basically has been slashing the budget since he became a 
congressman and now the head of OMB. And clearly nobody in Congress cares. Now that the Republicans are in charge again, it's not like you know, they're trying to battle the budget deficit. They're not really on track to reducing the budget deficit in any way. They're sort of spending like drunk sailors and and doing exactly what they accused the Democrats of doing before. And, you know, and then when you think about like who cares about clean energy, I think to suggest that the Democrats have any sway at all in this process is ridiculous, right? I mean, the Republicans have large majorities in the House. And my sense is, is that the Republicans themselves actually added a lot of money to this, to Catherine's point, because we have created so many jobs in their districts. You know what this tells me? It tells me that coal doesn't quite have the stranglehold on national politics that we assume. Because when it comes down to making the sausage, uh, there's strong support for all these programs that that uh, boost renewable energy, boost R&D across the energy sector. So there are all these individual fights. You see these meetings with Robert Murray trying to craft these regulatory plans to save coal plants and so forth. But like ultimately, when it comes down to budgeting and spending money, there's there's skin in the game among Republicans. They support this stuff. And it's very different from the kind of war on coal rhetoric that we've been used to over the last eight years. But remember, all politics is local. So if all politics is local and coal is not creating jobs, then that tells your story. And that brings us to our free electron. What what kind of free electron do you have bouncing around there, Catherine? Yeah, I have two quick things, both from the World Economic Forum that, as you all know, I'm up to my eyeballs in. One is a podcast that was just released, and you can subscribe on iTunes. And this is not to take anything away from the energy gang. There's a quick 20-minute podcast that really describes what our work on the future of energy has been undertaking. And um, I just listened to it. It just gives a good synopsis of what we've been working on. The other thing is a report they just released called Electric Vehicles for Smarter Cities. It's the future of energy and mobility. And it's pretty interesting because it it takes a look at the status quo versus opportunity and real transformation and looks at prioritizing high use for vehicles, looking at multi-stakeholder and yet market-specific applications, and then charging infrastructure in the anticipation of of real transformation. So I thought it was an interesting report. It's worth checking out. Very cool. Put it on the reading list. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I'm going to highlight a story that the Washington Post, I think, broke around um, SoftBank and the Saudi government wanting to work together on a 200 gigawatt um, solar build out between now and 2030. I I just, you know, like the Saudi government has made these promises before. And um, Green Tech Media actually has a great piece on this uh, by Jeff St. John. But I I think that um, you can see the Saudis getting more and more serious about this. You know, the the crown prince today really wants to take Saudi Aramco public um, at a $2 trillion valuation. It's not going to happen, which is why it hasn't gone public yet. But the Saudis burn about 600,000 barrels a day, a little bit more than that actually now, um, for their own electricity consumption. And this 200 gigawatts is about the right number to eliminate about 90 to 95% of this oil burning um, in their kingdom, which then allows them to sell that oil and make another $13 billion a year in profits, right? And $13 billion a year in profits is important 
for the crown prince to be able to take Saudi Ramco public for $2 trillion. So there's an, there's a logic to why this time might be different um, just because of the ego around the crown prince. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But I do think it makes a tremendous amount of sense for the Saudis to stop burning their own oil at $7 a barrel um, and instead use their sun to provide electricity. Yeah, it's a huge announcement and would be extraordinary if they could develop even half that much. There's a lot of questions about whether they can pull together the financing, where it will come from, um, how they're going to integrate that much solar on the grid, um, whether they're going to even meet their original 7 gigawatt target, which they have not met. I mean, the, the, the Saudi government doesn't have a great track record on this, but still a lot has changed since some of their initial announcements and it will be quite interesting to see if they can achieve even part of that goal because that's that's a lot of solar. Um, they're talking about you know tripling or quadrupling the amount of solar that they have currently. Well, while uh, we grapple with these big questions about Saudi Arabia's solar market, we're actually going to be in San Diego at the beginning of May grappling with a lot of other big questions about the solar industry globally and here in the U.S. If you heard our recent show on the interchange with Corey Honeyman, we talked about the slowdown in solar last year, you know, what caused it, why we're seeing jobs drop, where markets are are floundering, um, why customer acquisition is getting more challenging. And of course, you know, there's the dynamism in markets around the world is constantly shifting and markets are up and down. And so at our solar summit, we're going to be walking through all of that. And this Saudi project will definitely come up as well. I think we'll answer a lot of questions about pricing, um, the track record there, and other future projects like this around the world. So guess what? We, we really love you listeners. And per usual, you get a discount to the Solar Summit. We're giving you a 20% discount if you use the promo code PODCAST when you sign up for Solar Summit. So just go to greentechmedia.com slash solar and use the promo code podcast. And uh, yeah, you'll get a great discount at the Solar Summit. So I'm going to be there. Our whole editorial team will be there. Our entire solar research team, which is like continuing to grow. And uh, we've got a ton of data there for you to sift through. Well, with that, uh, we probably could keep talking, but we're going to have to cut it off there. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. Jigger, good to talk to you again. I really enjoyed your What It Takes, by the way. Thank you. That was so much fun to do. Emily's a fantastic interviewer. Even though you you, you, you criticize me for, for being too even-handed. <laughs> I, 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 I said that we are definitely not headed for a divorce. Yes, exactly. I don't know where I don't know where she got that. I would never divorce you guys. We're still we're still trucking. We love this podcast. Catherine fun conversation yeah definitely that's we're like a family that's why it seems that way exactly a family a gang a cohort a posse whatever it is we love to talk about energy clean tech and the environment with Catherine hamilton and jigger shaw i'm Stephen lacy this is the energy gang subscribe to us on apple Podcasts or anywhere you get podcasts leave us a rating and review send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com connect with us on twitter you can find us everywhere and we will catch you next week thanks for listening Thank you.